From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A team of specialists at Emory University will never forget August 2nd, 2014. That's the day Kent Brantley, an American missionary based in Liberia, became the first of four patients with the Ebola virus to arrive at its Atlanta facility. For the first time in history, doctors right here in the United States will battle the Ebola virus. We turn now to Atlanta, where the hospital treating America's first Ebola patient is preparing for a second one to arrive. There is now a second patient who contracted Ebola in the hospital in Dallas, and this one had flown halfway across the country with a fever. The eyes of the world watched as the Serious Communicable Diseases Unit in hazmat suits successfully treated Brantley and three other patients with the highly infectious disease. Though the crisis faded from the headlines, an active Ebola outbreak is now going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo and a health emergency. And the team at Emory is innovating on what they learned five years ago to help with the disease now. Dr. Colleen Kraft is an infectious disease specialist and physician and microbiologist who was part of the original Ebola team at Emory. She's joining me to reflect on developments since. Colleen, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's so fascinating. I mean, we'll get to the current status in a moment, but yes. just it brings back these scenes and this horror of images of medical specialists, you know, white head to toe, treating people in Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, Guinea, and here in Atlanta. How, how about for you? What does it bring back for you? I mean, I really divide my life into before Ebola and after Ebola. Wow. The amount of things that we learned, um, the team that we built, the team that cared for those patients, you know, all of that work really, really changed who I am and changed who I was also who I am as a physician as well. Uh, that's interesting. I so. want to get into that, but I'd love to know how Kent, can you remind us of who Kent Brantley was first? Yeah, so Kent Brantley is a family practice physician. He was with Samaritan's Purse in Liberia at the time. Uh, at that time, you know, it was not known that in West Africa you could have Ebola virus disease. We don't really know what the vector is for Ebola virus. And so it was introduced into a population that both, you know, had never seen it before, but then was really unprepared to manage it and the spread because it really spread from rural areas areas, as is where it's usually found to begin with, into these urban settings. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was that Kent found himself on the front line um, with their Elwa hospital. And, um, you know, he was taking care of, you know, 20, then 30, then 50 patients a day. And he was watching them all die, basically, mm. because they weren't really prepared to do full, almost intensive care like work in in that in that hospital setting. When did you find out that he was coming to Atlanta? July 30th, 2014. Just a few days before then. Right. And so that's also Bruce Ribner's birthday, which I just found out this year that that was his birthday. So he's the medical director of our serious communicable diseases unit. But I was rounding in the hospital. I was actually rounding on patients that were located in where we were eventually to put Kent and followed by Nancy. And I remember getting a page from Bruce and we often did drills. And so I did not believe him that this was a real thing because they we did drills every year and it was always sort of this surprise, you know, you're, you're stressed to the max and then yeah, they tell you. tell me about the drills. What, what is that? Oh, you know, we typically have like a fake patient I come see. over from some location. They might start at CDC. They might start at the airport. We're, we're, we do them all the time now. We do them even more frequently than we... Um, have in the past before Ebola came to the United States. But yeah, we try to test all our systems with fake patients to see how things function in the moment. So this is as a member of the Serious Communicable Diseases Unit at Emory University Hospital. 
um, that the first outbreak of Ebola was reported in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, in 1976. So what did you know about the disease then, and how did you expand on that knowledge? Yeah, so it was in the village of Yambuku, and they didn't name it the Yambuku virus because they didn't want to stigmatize that village in the Democratic Republic of Congo until, I would say, 2014, were really focused on quarantine. These were only rural outbreaks. They were in very remote settings. They didn't have great infrastructure. And so th while they tried to clinically support these uh, individuals who were infected, they didn't have a lot to offer them. You know, I think they started giving some plasma, some different things um, very early on in some of the 1990s outbreaks. But it was really a focus of quarantine. So by 2013, when this outbreak happens in West Africa, were you equipped at all to deal with the actual treatment beyond the quarantine? So we were in a preclinical sense. So since, you know, there had been a whole host of basic scientists that had been researching Ebola virus disease and its treatment for decades. By 2014, we actually had some therapeutics, but none of them had been tested in humans, partly because we hadn't had a ton of recent outbreaks during the early 2000s. And so, um, you know, we, we then began to give things like ZMAP, uh, Kent and Nancy both received ZMAP. I can say that because it's all been published. You can yes, find it yourself. Yes, and now it is successfully being used. Right. So it's been used. Uh, now they've uh, this outbreak that's going on in the North Kivu region of the Democratic Republic of the Congo has had um, given the most medical countermeasures. That's sort of the term we use um, instead of experimental drugs. It doesn't, doesn't sound quite as um, negative. We even think we're getting closer to like actually true superiority in some of these drugs, which honestly, even in 2014, we couldn't imagine a clinical, a prospective clinical trial where we could establish, you know, an effective treatment for Ebola virus disease. It's extremely exciting. We're getting a picture of Ebola then and now from Dr. Colleen Kraft, an infectious disease specialist and microbiologist. She's reflecting on her work with U.S. Ebola patients at Emory University following an epidemic five years ago. And this was huge in the media. I mean, People were terrified when those patients were first brought to the U.S. What kind of feedback, and I would say kickback, did you get at the time? Well, most of us got it on many different levels. And so, you know, your next door neighbor, uh, I had the a preschool parent that wanted to pull their child out of the preschool because my child was in the preschool. Mm. Uh, you know, we had friends that were working in West Africa that were that came back and were quarantined. Their families wouldn't let them come to holidays. Um, you know, wouldn't let them stay in their house. So it was it was you know a really interesting time. I think. We also learned a lot about transmission. You know, if you think about um, Mr. Duncan, who was the only sort of, you know, imported case, the true imported case in the United States. The man in Dallas exactly. who, who died. He Correct. was of Liberian descent, I think. Yes, he was visiting his fiance and family. Mm -hmm. And so he actually didn't infect any of his family members who were caring for him while he was ill. And so it's really been interesting to watch sort of what we learned about how transmissible it truly is, and then realizing that, you know, it still is a life-threatening disease that you definitely don't want. Yeah, and so you must be used to that in the communicable, you know, serious communicable diseases. The way that people's fears operate has a lot to do with how the course of this evolves. Is that, is that accurate? Absolutely. We, though, um, spent a lot of time in Emory Hospital to our patients. We had people available to talk to patients, family members, and staff. <clears throat> we had numerous town halls at, for all shifts to be able to address every single person that had a concern within our healthcare system as well. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, our third patient had eye disease two months after he recovered. We kind of had to do it all over again in the clinic. 
because the clinic, of course, wasn't concerned about having Ebola virus disease, except that we found it in someone's eye in the clinic. And so, you know, we really had to spend a lot of time answering questions and educating about, you know, why, how safe we were being, you know, we're being very intentional, you know, the purposes of bringing these individuals back, et cetera. Well, and I know two of them just came back last month to, um, what, was there a lot of (laughs) high-fiving? Or were they also there to be checked out? I mean, do you keep track of these patients and how they're doing? Oh, we absolutely keep track of them. We have very close relationships with all of them because we sort of walked on the moon together um, and they survived. And, you know, we feel indebted to them for their generosity and keeping us in mind. And, and of course, they appreciate the care that we gave. There was some high, maybe some high-fiving, but it was like a reunion. It was like a very, very touching reunion. And Dr. Ian Crozier, he's back in the DRC. Yes. So, so he, he is back. Uh, he Actually, he's been in North Kivu. In Goma, there were three cases that went to the capital region of Goma um, of one to two million. He helped um, care for those individuals. And then in South Kivu, he was also been recently there, um, all with uh, WHO and Lidos. So once you've had the disease, does one have the, the antibodies against it or... Uh are there other kind of precautions that he has taken to protect himself? Yeah, so he undoubtedly will take the same precautions as everyone else. So it is true that he has antibodies against this disease, um, but it would be not good from a team perspective to have one person that has sort of different rules when they go into the Ebola unit as somebody else from a team and contagion standpoint. You said earlier that we all took this walk on the moon together. So this was absolutely a pioneering thing, never done before. Did you think at any point that you couldn't do it? I mean, what what were the stakes? Oh, the stakes were high. Uh, I mean, the stakes were your own life. But I did not have concern that I was going to contract this. The way it would have defied logic, the way that we were dressing. So it's called donning and doffing our personal protective equipment. Uh, I, I did not have concern. Our team was really close. We are always watching each other. No one was ever left uh, alone. And so we just, and everything that we did that was different, like starting dialysis or intubating the patient, we did that as a team, as a large group. And so everybody, we also had like a flat hierarchy of anybody could raise concerns or have, if they had issues, you know, it wasn't something we just sort of made a, a, a quick decision on. I think the thing that I thought we weren't going to be able to do was save Ian Crozier. Mm. He was so sick. Um, and I remembered back to um, Kent Brantley's, I think it was August 21st, his Today is a Ma- Miraculous Day press conference. And I just didn't think we were going to get Ian there. I thought he was, we just thought he might die. And that was so scary and stressful. That's what I thought we couldn't do was save Ian. So it, he, once the virus came out of his body, his whole, like his brain, his kidneys, liver, everything came back. No degenerative effects five years later. Oh, well, he would say plenty because the post-Ebola sequelae are many. So joint disease, you know, he had the eye disease. He required also cataract surgery um, because he had an inflammation of his eye. He also ended up with cataract. You know, um, he also had encephalitis from Ebola. So he states that he still has sort of word-finding issues. He has some hearing loss um, from it being in his brain. But I would say in general from what we thought he would recover to, to being back in Goma, taking care of other patients, you know, he's, I think he's doing great. So now Ebola curable, let's say, due to ZMAP, or there can be 
better results than we certainly saw in the past. But the World Health Organization does still say that this outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo is serious. Why do you think we aren't hearing as much about it as we did during the 2014 outbreak? Uh, so there's a couple things I wanted to respond to. One is that this is still out of control because of the violence in the area. So when Ian spoke to us from Goma uh, at our commemoration last month, there have been only over 200 attacks on um, Ebola treatment units and healthcare personnel. That's a very hard situation in which to find people, contact trace, give vaccine to those that have potentially been exposed. So that's the reason this is, even though the treatment's been really a great advancement, the political and social situation there is is dire. And so, you know, in a little bit of a jaded way, one of the reasons we don't hear about it is because we haven't imported a case. Remember, we didn't care much about West Africa until Kent Brantley came. Right. I mean, it, it, it kind of raised that global awareness. Um, you know, it's it's just sort of a tough situation. We also, I think, we kind of think because Democratic Republic of the Congo has had 10 outbreaks, you know, this is just one more for them. But this is really different than all of their previous outbreaks. It, it's it's more already people than all of their other ones combined. I do think um, that if it continues to perpetuate, I, unfortunately, there could be many headlines about it, which we really don't want. Right. But now it feels a little like elsewhere, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, Dr. Colleen Kraft, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing um, the post-Ebola Dr. Kraft. Yeah, thanks. It's my pleasure. Dr. Colleen Kraft, an infectious disease specialist, physician, and microbiologist, and part of the original Serious Communicable Diseases Unit team at Emory. She helped treat Ebola patients there in 2014 and continues to. Coming up, a writer from Columbus previews her debut novel. It's called Title Flats, and it's about the tension in a marriage for adventure and the desire for stability. Stay with us for that when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The photograph of a young Afghan woman with piercing green eyes and a tattered red hijab is one of the most indelible images of the 20th century. You can probably picture it. Well, 20 years after taking that photo in a refugee camp in 1985, Stephen Curry said he still got inquiries about the Afghan girl every day. There's certain photographs which have struck a chord in people. I was very happy that several people told me uh, that they had actually volunteered to go work in Pakistan in refugee camps based on that picture. That image first appeared on the cover of National Geographic and is part of the inspiration for Tidal Flats, the debut novel by Columbus-based author Cynthia Newbery-Martin. It tracks a couple's conflicting needs for adventure and stability. And Cynthia is talking about the book tonight for the Writers at the Wrecking Ball series in Atlanta, but joins me now in the studio. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, your book is a work of fiction. So you altered the timing and the subject of that image of the Afghan girl for your plot. But the photo really is critical in some ways. Do you recall when you first saw it? I don't remember when I first saw it. It seems to like always have been in my consciousness. Uh, I believe at the time in the 80s, we had a subscription to National Geographic. So it would have actually been around. Uh, but when I went to do just the initial research on Afghanistan, there it was. And it's just an amazing, it's, it grabs you, those, those eyes. There's so much that he 
as a photojournalist is able to do with one photograph, one moment. Yeah, and as we heard, people really took it to heart. She yes. was in a Pakistani camp, but an Afghan girl, and many people went to go and help. You went somewhere else with it. And let's talk about how it fits into the book, because a photojournalist is one of the main characters. Ethan Graham, he's the husband in this couple. Who is he, and who is the subject of that photograph? Ethan uh, uh, went to Georgia State and wanted to be a photojournalist. At first, he couldn't get a job, so he uh, CNN sent him to cover the war. And while he was there covering the war, he happened upon uh, a, a group of women in a school and managed to uh, take photos inching by inch up to get her picture. And when she turned around, it was her amber eyes. And so she is a young woman. She's older. And there was such power in that moment that it affected him. And he, this woman, we come to know her name is Satara, if I'm saying that properly. Correct. And they become partners in a, an NGO, a nonprofit. Um, she is, the, the actual woman in the Stephen Curry photograph was discovered through retinal research in 2002, many, many years later. So that's a whole story in itself. But the story here is that she is a woman that is powerful, beautiful. Yes. Um, and to Cass, the, the wife of Ethan, um, you know, she can have a baby and still go on and save the world. It's something that she feels very jealous of. And this is part of Ethan's connection to the people and place of of Afghanistan and, and pull to keep going back there. The main tension of the relationship with his wife, Cass, who's never been. Why is Afghanistan such a complicated place for her? For Cass? Well, I think it just represents uh, Ethan not with her. That is Ethan's other love. Uh, I believe she thinks that that's who she's competing with. Yeah. Um, he And Afghanistan takes Ethan away from her and leaves her by herself. So there's that as well. And her father also was fighting in Afghanistan, yes. left for Afghanistan over and over again. Everybody is leaving for someplace else in her mind, I think she says at one point. So she's a little jealous of Satara, or maybe for his passion for the place. Um, realizes she's being a little childish, uh, but it feels very real to her. And let's get a little more on Cass. Her, her real given name is Mary Cassatt Miller, after the painter Mary Cassatt. Her mother's a frustrated artist, and she has a really complicated relationship with her. How does that affect how she sees the world and relationships? Well, uh, Cass, uh, she has a lot to get over with her childhood. Um, and actually, the same as Satara. Satara had a troubled childhood, and she rose up out of it. And Cass is struggling with her childhood, uh, and she, we don't see it actually in the book, but she is almost becoming reclusive until she uh, stumbles upon uh, this advertisement and then discovers the fates and her love, um, her love of taking care of these three unusual older women uh, in Atlanta. So uh, that's where she that's that helps pull her out of herself. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of pulling her out of herself. Well, it's interesting because her mom says to her at one point, like, I never wanted kids. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say. In fact, I think it's when she first gets her period. So she's becoming a woman and her mother basically says, well, I, did, I never wanted kids. You, you'll be smarter than I am. So and 
you know, things actually later is revealed that things didn't end well for her mother. Um, but she, Cass is making her a project to want kids. You know, her husband wants kids. Ethan wants kids. And therein lies the rub. And the title, Title Flats, is not exactly a, exactly a place, uh, but it's an agreement, a pact. What What's the agreement between them? The agreement is uh, Ethan wants children. Cass does not. Uh, Cass wants a husband who comes home at night. But, of course, Ethan's job takes him back and forth to Afghanistan. But they both want a life together. And so Ethan comes up with an idea that if he can just go back and forth to Afghanistan for three years, then at the end of that time, he'll come home whether Cass wants children or not. But during this time that he's gone, Cass is supposed to be working on wanting children. Mm -hmm. And so the book actually opens uh, nine weeks before he's supposed to come home for good. And it's clear immediately that uh, it's unclear whether he's going to actually come home. You know, I hear about couples who make these kind of packs. Like, you got five years in this place, and then I get five years in that place. Is that something that you've ever negotiated in your relationship? Uh, not exactly that. I mean, they, the- they're <laughs> adhering to it super strongly. <laughs> they are. I did, as a matter of fact, when my last child left for college back in 2012, I had been working on the negotiations, and I had been uh, taking care of children for 31 years, which is a long time yeah. to have children uh, on a, taking care of them on a daily basis. So I was ready for something new. So in January of 2013, I started going uh, back and forth to Provincetown once a month for a week at a time to have some writing time and just breathe the New England air. And that is when I started this novel. So that was percolating in my head as I was writing this. Yeah, that's right at the very tip of Cape Cod. It is. Beautiful, beautiful place in Provincetown. It figures into this uh, book in some kind of way. My guest is Cynthia Newberry Martin. She's a Columbus-based author, and her new novel is called Title Flats, and she's kicking off the Writers at the Wrecking Bar series for September tonight in Atlanta. Well, so in her mind, Cass's mind, all these men that she loves are leaving her. And at this point in her life, her mother is dead. So you mentioned the fates. Let's get to some of the maternal input in her life, which is just wonderfully rich. Uh, This is at Howell House. First, what is Howell House? Howell House is uh, a home that originally belonged to an individual. And when Hattie Howell died, she left it uh, to a foundation to provide uh, housing and a home for three older women. So that is where Cass works, and she loves these unusual women. and um, Calls them the fates. Yes, she does. Uh, she, in the story, uh, it's not clear how they got that name. They had that name before Cass ever appeared on the scene. But when I was writing it, I was thinking, okay, I have three women. And of course, I originally went to Macbeth and uh, the witches. Yeah. And I thought, that, that doesn't feel right. And so then I was thinking maybe the Greek fates. So I put um, knitting needles in May's hands and a measuring cup in Lois's hands and scissors in Ada's hands. Well, they did. One of them has somewhat witchy powers. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> she's, she's good at sort of predicting the future or, you know, otherworldly. And they bring this kind of richness to her and this 
you know, this triumvirate of female wisdom of experience, but still Cass is suffering a lot with being alone. And and there's a lot in this book about the nature of being alone and some exquisite literary references to help us through. Her friend V gives her May Sarton's book, The Journal of Solitude. I'd love for you to read a bit about that kind of interaction between the two of them. Sure. Yeah. The part I'm going to read uh, takes place. Ethan is in Afghanistan, and it's evening, and V has dropped by Cass's apartment with a six-pack of beer. And so they're just sitting around talking. Growing up, I got so good at alone. Then I got married and thought alone was over. I let my guard down, and now it's hit me all over again. Aren't you lonely? Sometimes, Fee said, but I'm rereading May Sarton's Journal of a Solitude. I love that book, and I refuse to let loneliness have its way. When you gave me a copy of that book, Cass said, I thought it was going to be a how-to, a triumph of solitude, that I would find the answer on how to be at peace when you're by yourself. But instead, there was just the struggle. She seems to always be struggling. There is nothing to do, there is nothing to be done, but go ahead with life, moment by moment and hour by hour. Put out birdseed, tidy the rooms, Try to create order and peace around me, even if I cannot achieve it inside me. That's kind of how-to. Not in my world, Cass said. Life is not really as black and white as we would like it to be. Half his heart is over there. Yeah, so she's referring, of course, to Ethan, half his heart is over there. But that little quote from May Sarton, you know, just like, go piece by piece, little by little in your life. I, th- I thought you were very good at writing about loneliness. Is that, <laughs> is that an experience you've had a lot or, you know, taking care of kids for 31 years, something you craved? It is, in fact, something I crave. I, I thought it was from having taking to, taking care of children for so long. But actually, when I look back, I have always needed a lot of alone time, an enormous amount of alone time. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a house with um, sisters and a brother, three sisters and a brother. And I, um, even when I left for college, I requested a single room. And after my first child was born, I took a trip to Paris for a week by myself. And I kept doing these kinds of things. So it's been, it didn't just come from having children. It's been there all along. Another uh, reference in this book is Rumi over and over again. Uh, Cass's father leaves her, or he's left behind a book of Rumi's poems. And there's a bit from Rumi on emptiness. Don't think you must avoid it. It contains exactly what you need. So what is Cass learning here? Is she working her way through, you know, that it's not black and white? There's not someone here or gone, that there's something else going on. What were you exploring there? I think uh, in Title Flats is in part Cass's journey uh, to learn more about herself. I think that her difficult childhood with her father being away and her mother being so unhappy taking care of her, she closed down. And, uh, and that she, we see her in this novel begin to understand that there's, there's, she doesn't have to be shut down and that if she maybe opens her heart 
a little bit. Uh, she can find, rediscover who she was uh, as a child and uh, rediscover the joy, perhaps, and uh, uh, maybe get used to being alone. Mm-hmm. And she 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 learns, she does some walking. That's how she figures things out. So that's one way she's uh, starting to move out of herself, like out of being isolated and in an apartment by herself out into the world. Right. And, and away from that illusion of control. I think she says yes. at one point, you know, like she <laughs> being alone, you can control everything. Right. And of course, everybody's uh, you can control everything if you're sitting on a mountaintop <laughs> all by yourself. Well, so many things happen. There's lots of danger, suspense, revelations and pushback. Um, and there's, a, of course, the local hot bartender who's made himself <laughs> available to Cass. In his absence. But there's a lot of identity tied up for both of them staying in their positions. You know, like, I want this, you want this. What is at risk for Ethan if he doesn't keep going back? What what, what about his identity? Well, that's a good question because I do think that, um, you know, everybody sees Ethan as the Afghan woman right. guy. They want him to go back. They, they want that guy. Yes. And I, I just think he makes it clear at the beginning that uh, he wants more than that. And he he doesn't want that to be his whole life. And yet, I mean, so he's going back and forth with it. And uh, so it's difficult. It's difficult for each of them, but they're fighting for their own, uh, what is important to them. And uh, I think that's, um, I think, you know, and is marriage, can marriage uh, move and uh, shift shapes and expand to handle this kind of a back and forth. Uh, and it, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, that, but that is what gets revealed here. And that it's a lot about the things that p- push us to know ourselves and um, whether we'll pursue them unless we're pushed up against a wall. <laughs> is that true for you? Is that is that the takeaway? I think the takeaway is that we, no matter what happens, we always have a choice. And uh, I think that uh, we can see that throughout. But it's it's really, you know, it, at one point, you know, is is the life you want more important than the person you love? And uh, they each have to make that choice. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us about your new book and congratulations on it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's an opportunity for us to play some Afghan pop from Ariana Saeed Hirana. As we thank Cynthia Newberry Martin. Her book is called Title Flats, and she's kicking off the September edition of the Writers of the Wrecking Ball series tonight at 7. G- details are at GBB. Dot org. And coming up, the Sim- Savannah Symphony has a new director. Sarah Zaslaw talks with him when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Savannah Philharmonic Orchestra's new season begins this Saturday, that's September 14th, with a new music director, Keitaro Harada. Kei, as he is known, grew up in Tokyo, but is no stranger to Georgia. He studied at Mercer University in Macon, where he was assistant conductor of the Macon Symphony, and then picked up the baton for four seasons as associate conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony. Sarah Zaslaw is host of GPB's Nightcap, and she welcomed Harada back to Georgia and spoke with him about his new role. 
I gather that matchmaking between an orchestra and a conductor is a little bit like dating. Like everyone's checking each other out. And at the heart of it, it really comes down to chemistry. So when you led the Savannah Philharmonic in your sort of trial week of concerts last spring, was it a sort of shy warming up or was it more like love at first sight? You know, you're exactly right. Whenever I guest conduct any orchestra for the first time, it's like a blind date. You don't really know each other. And just like in any date in real life person, you're just judging each other. From the moment that I'm walking on stage to the first rehearsal, I could feel this energy that they're checking me out. And at the same time, I'm checking them out too. But in the case with the Savannah Philharmonic this past spring, when we did a concert with Marcus Roberts, it was definitely a love at first sight. We immediately clicked from the first rehearsal. Just the way I rehearse, they understood my language. They understood the way I make music and how I try to make the composer's intentions come to life. And they quickly responded and they really wanted to make my thoughts happen. So it was really a wonderful music making session. And I think we really knew through the rehearsals that there was something special and I'm really thankful that they have decided to appoint me as their new music and artistic director. For now, where is home? For now, home is Cincinnati, Ohio, Tampa, Florida. My wife is a tennis player, and Tampa is the hub for tennis, and Tokyo, Japan, and also some percentage of the year it will be Savannah, so four homes. Did you two meet through music or tennis or something else? We were introduced by a mutual friend, but we actually started talking over Instagram. And after 10 days of talking on Instagram, I actually flew her to Cincinnati. She was in Tokyo at that time. And within 24 hours, we decided we should just get married. Let's go back to the beginning and back to music. Conductors usually naturally start as something else musically because you, you don't grow up with an orchestra to play. So mm -hmm. back as a kid in Tokyo, what was your first instrument or musical training? I started off as a saxophonist. Um, my passion in music came from musicals. I saw West Side Story as a child in the movie form and also from our school production. And I was just fascinated by the entire thing, not just the music, but also the theatrical aspect, the songs, the costumes, the set. And I thought, this is what I really wanted to do. I came to um, Michigan to attend Interlochen Arts Academy to learn how to be a doubler, trying to play different kinds of instruments, to be a pit musician in New York, Chicago, Broadway, you know, London and be part of that musical scene. I wish I was on stage and was dancing and singing, but I'm a horrible singer and a poor dancer, so that was not going to be my career. <laughs> but I really just embraced being in the pit, in the orchestra pit, playing in musicals, and I did that a lot growing up. So when did you get the conducting bug? It was in high school. Um, I was fortunate to be under the direction of Frederick Fennell, the wonderful wind ensemble conductor. Playing under him was an inspiration, and I approached him about becoming a conductor, and he opened opportunities for me. What was the first piece you ever conducted in public? Do you remember? 
Yes, it was the encore to one of the wind ensemble concerts. It's actually the beautiful second theme from Hansen's Second Symphony. about your student days in Macon. What brought you to Mercer? So my first year, I actually was a student at University of Illinois. And one summer, I went to a master class in Russia where I met the former music director of Macon Symphony, Adrian Ganam. And I really thought that he would be a perfect person that I could learn a lot from. I approached him and he said, well, come to Macon and you could be my student and attend Mercer University and alongside be the assistant conductor for the Macon Symphony Orchestra. Now, as you know, it's hard for conductors to get better because you can't really practice. Mm. You know, a violinist, pianist, they could practice on their instrument, but, you know, conductors, we could hold the stick and look at the mirror for hours, but it's not going to make us better conductors. So I had the idea of creating a youth orchestra, and in that way, once a week, I had my own orchestra. The press release about your hiring says that Harada continuously reimagines the role that music plays in building community. So what does that mean? I think for me as music director in Savannah, I have to be able to tell the story of Savannah. The biggest challenge is for me to create concert and programming and themes of seasons that is completely unique to Savannah that only the Savannah Philharmonic can do, which means trying to bring out the culture and the history of this place, collaborating with local artists, and then also just coming outside of the boundary of performing at a concert venue and audience have to be quiet. Um, I would like to go away from that mold. I think every orchestra, their struggle is to get more younger audience. I have the approach of you have to actually bring the music to where the young audiences are. So creating a buzz, creating unconventional performance venues, finding what the niche is in Savannah. Are there categories or tiers of orchestras? And where does the 10-year-old Savannah Philharmonic fit into that scheme? The Savannah Philharmonic, it being very young, is a per-service orchestra. It attracts um, musicians from the Atlanta area, from Florida, even from some Midwest, and some musicians fly in from New York. People from, you know, the Georgia area or within the 100, 200 mile radius, it makes sense that they would come to Savannah. But it also attracts people who fly in to come and play with this orchestra, which really speaks a lot about the environment of the musicians and this organization. So in order to put Savannah Philharmonic on the map of the big history of orchestras in the United States, I have to really think of what only we can do that gains national attention where people will seek the interest of what um, what is Harada doing with Savannah. What's great is that this season I'm a music and artistic director designate, which gives me a cushion of time before I announce my first real season in the spring. Mm-hmm. I have time to observe and really understand the people and the needs of the musician and the organization. In general... 
Do you notice differences between Japanese classical culture, concert culture, and the culture around classical music in the U.S.? The biggest difference is that in Japan, no one stands to applaud. When I attend a concert in Japan, I have the tendency to stand up and applaud if the performance was really wonderful. But I really stick out like a sore thumb because no one else around me would stand. It's not that they don't appreciate the concert. It's just that that's not what they do. Uh-huh. I come from Tokyo. I was born and raised in Tokyo. And I think it's the city that has the most classical music concerts anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And it has in just one city, was it eight full-time professional orchestras and then just tons of amateur orchestras. But I think the enthusiasm in both countries are very much alike. I don't see huge differences Mm. between the two. Do you have any heroes or favorite inspirational quotes? This is a quote from my wife's um, grandfather, who is a famous fashion designer in Japan. And he said in Japanese, which in English directly translates into be the person who you aspire to be or be the person that you need to be. It speaks to me a lot because you don't want to be someone who you're not. When you're in the arts industry, you have other people that inspire you, other people who challenge you, other people you might be jealous of. The tendency naturally is to compare yourself with others, but that's not the important thing in life. And as especially as an artist, it's becoming who you must be or who you can be or who you want to be and then working diligently every day to hone your craft to be that person unaffected by others. So be the person that you want to be. Mm. It speaks to me a lot. That's Keitaro Harada speaking with our colleague and Nightcap host, Sarah Zaslaw. You can hear the full interview on most GBB stations at 10 o'clock tomorrow night. Dontavious Willis got his start singing gospel in his hometown of Greenville, Georgia. But something clicked inside of him when he first heard the blues. This song, The Blues is Dead, from his second album, Spectacular Class, was released earlier this year. Critics and blues artists hailed the album and declared him very much a wonderkind and genius who proved that the blues is still very much alive. Before he went on tour, John Tavius added two songs written or performed by a Georgian to our Georgia playlist. My name is John Tavius Willis. I am 23 years old, born in LaGrange, Georgia, from Greenville, Georgia, currently living in Noonan, Georgia. I am a multi-instrumentalist, singer, and a uh, blues musician, and also gospel. Can't forget gospel. First song I want to add to the Georgia playlist will be Tight Like That by Tampa Red and Georgia Tone. Listen now, folks, we want to sing a little song. Don't get mad, we don't mean no harm. You know it's tight like that. Beat it up, boy, it's tight like that. Beat it up, boy, you hear me talk to you. I mean it's tight like that. I feel like uh, 
this song is significant because both musicians were from Georgia. Tampa Red were from Smithville, Georgia. Tommy Dorsey was from Villa Rica, Georgia. This record would go on to sell millions of records and um, cross what we call the color line, you know. So it would break the uh, racial barrier, and ha uh, the song would be sung by uh, white people and black people and everyone around. Even they say even little kids whistling the song. They didn't know what they were whistling about, but so that's an interesting song. Tommy Dorsey would go on after doing blues to be known as the father of gospel music. He's a real humorous, and a lot of people, when they think of blues, they think it's just like sad, downtrodden stuff. But it's, just, it's a whole humorous song, it's funny. Um, and Tampa Red's playful voice in it, you know. Makes it jet much better. Next song will be Time Won't Make Me Stay by Ed Andrews. I'm going, I'm going, time will make me stay. I'm going, I'm going, time will make me stay. I'll leave you walking, talking to bed day. It's actually simple. It's real simple musically. It's like not complex at all, but I think it's the words. Because in some of the early blues, country blues, it was about lyrics. You can have the same riffs, but people were just listening to the story. And the real title of this, because what he's singing in it, is called Crying Won't Make Me Stay. But but the record, you can't find the record under that name, so they, it's, it's typed as uh, Time Won't Make Me Stay. That's what the record label put it out as. But funny, a lot of the record labels would misprint some of the titles. I think they couldn't understand how some of the folks' dialect were in the South. But this song was recorded in Atlanta in 1924. It was the first country blues vocal and guitar ever recorded. And no one knows anything about Ian Andrews. All they know, he recorded two songs in Atlanta in May of 1924. And it was never seen again. I'm going, I'm going, crying won't make me stay. The more you cry, the further you drive me away. 
Blues musician and Georgia native John Tavius Willis there. His latest album is called Spectacular Class. For more Georgia playlists, visit gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our theme song is by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin. I'm Virginia Prescott, back tomorrow at 9 or anytime with the On Second Thought podcast, all from GPB. He just been taking his risk.